Amen. All right, let's look at uh, Exodus 14, starting in verse 1. Uh, set the context, though. So two weeks ago, we learned about the plagues and the final plague of the Passover. And Pharaoh says, enough. These Egyptian, I'm sorry, these Israelites, let's get them out of here, right? And then uh, last week, they're heading out, and they're not going to go the easy way through the land of the Philistines. God's going to take them the long way around. So they're in process of leaving, heading towards the promised land, okay? So they've been kicked out. They've been, they've been told, we're, we've had enough of you, Israel. Get out of here. And Israel's on their way out. And so here is verse 1 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-hirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get Glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So Israel's heading out. They're camped out by the sea, right? And right off the bat, we hear from God about his motives for their salvation. Okay, did you see that in verse 4? The motives, his motives for their salvation. Judgment and salvation, verse 4. What's the motive on the part of God? Number one, if you look at verse 4, you'll see his glory and then knowledge of God. The Egyptians would know. God wants to be known. So God wants to be glorified. God wants to be known. That's what he's up to in this text. That he is God and he has no rivals. God has a profound God-centeredness. Does that sound funny to you? God has a profound God-centeredness. Look at verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh, and all is lost, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He wants, number one, glory for himself, and number two, he wants himself to be known as the Lord of all the universe through these events. So this is the beginning. God's saying what he's about to do in, in the near future, and that sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. So keep that in mind. God's motives, glory for himself, knowledge of himself, and let's keep reading. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. So before it was plagues, we've had enough. Get these Israelites out of here. The Lord is, is fearsome and mighty, and we don't want anything to do with it. Like, get them out of here. And now their mind has been changed. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. Like, our economy is going to collapse, right? We don't need slave labor anymore. This was crazy. What were we thinking? Verse 6. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So again, like we've talked about, to read the Bible and to read it well, you've got to place yourself imaginatively in the text. So when you hear 600 chariots, in our context, think like 600 tanks, 
right? Bearing down on you and your whole family and two million of your closest friends, okay? And there's 600 tanks coming to get you. That's what this would have been like. And verse 8 says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So they're pursuing. Here they come. This, this horde, this Egyptian horde coming to destroy. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Haharath and in front of Baal-Zephon. So what God said would happen, God is always true to his word, what God said would happen is now happening. Here they come. The, the, the fierce horde of Egypt is coming to crush God's people. So now God's people find themselves in a really scary spot. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's a staggering lack of faith here, right? And we're going to see this over and over again. Just take notes. Some of us struggle with thinking that we're not worthy of being saved or I'm not a good enough Christian. Friends, take heart. These people just saw 10 plagues. They put the the blood over their door by faith and saw God pass over their firstborn while the firstborn of all the Egyptians slain. They experienced the mighty power of God when they trust him by faith. And God was so pleased to save them, and he's about to do it again. But it's not because they're so awesome. It's not because they're good Christians. It's because God's sovereign electing love was just on them. That's it. Profound lack of faith here. So, man, maybe we can see ourselves here. Now, I know you read a text like this sometimes, and maybe you have a a different reaction where it's like, look at these idiots. Like, I wouldn't be like that. And they just saw the the Passover take place, and what are they crying about? Right? And we're like, stupid biblical people. Like, I wouldn't be like that. Right? (laughs) Wrong. I mean, I do the same thing. Like, God does miracles in my life. I mean, I can tell you stories. I don't have time this morning, but... And then five minutes later, I'm like, God, what's happening? I'm scared, and you're not going to provide for me anymore because I know you just did, but I know you might not in the future, so I'm struggling here, lack of faith. Right? I do the same thing. What do, you, what do you think? You guys do the same thing too? Yeah. Let's keep reading. So we've got, we got the pursuing horde. We've got the response of the people. And now we're going to see the response of Moses. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So what's the first thing he says? He says, fear not. That's all they've got. When you've got 600 tanks bearing down on you, I mean, we can be sympathetic, right? That's pretty scary. But Moses says, fear not. Did you guys know that's the most frequent command in the Bible? God, God knows what we need, that we're anxious people. I'm an anxious man, that I'm fearful, struggling in my faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, we're all in that. So he's so good to come to us and say, fear not. Fear not. Even when there's an army bearing down on you to kill you, fear not. But, but man, Moses, why would, he, why would he have the audacity to say that in this situation? I mean, come on, 600 tanks bearing down on you, and he says, fear not. Why would he have the audacity to say that? I think it's because he knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that the fury of Egypt's armies is no match for the Lord of all the universe who is on their side. You see how faith goes to war with fear? But, but, but see, th- this kind of faith is not how the world talks about faith. We're just going to have to have faith, and I don't even know what that means. Like, f- faith in what? Like, faith has to have an object, Faith, biblical faith means trust. So I'm trusting in something. I'm trusting in this chair that when I sit in it, it's going to hold me up. I'm trusting that this stage isn't going to implode under my feet right now. That's biblical faith, trusting in something. And so who is Moses? Moses is the guy who from day one, he's had to be fully surrendered and submitted to this God. Knowing that apart from this God, he's got nothing. He already said it from chapter 3 on. Like, Burning Bush, you want me to go talk to this Pharaoh guy, most powerful man in the whole world, and I'm supposed to command him? And and, and God says, I'm with you. But no, you don't understand. Like, I I can't talk, God. Like, I stutter. And this is a a mission of being an orator. And and the audience is scary, and he could just kill me like this. God says, I'll be with you. But these people, they're, they're whining and they're complaining. I'll be with you. And Moses got to see the staff turn into a serpent miracle. He got to see all these plagues that, that, that he did with his staff and the, and the river turned to blood. He got to see the salvation of, from judgment on the firstborn. See, Moses knew this God. He remembered who he was. And it's on this foundation, not just some... Mamby-pamby, have faith. No, on the foundation of knowing this God and who he is and what he's done, that's the foundation by which he says to these people that are trembling, fear not. And look at what else he says. This is, this is so helpful for them and for us. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see, like look, watch, see the salvation of the Lord. So stand firm, like don't run, don't, don't go like overconfident and go attack because you'll get crushed. Don't like just bail. Honestly, you got nowhere to go unless you're going to swim real far, right? So what are you going to do? Just stay put. Stay put. And what else? Verse, look at verse 13. See, watch, 
What's going to happen? Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. And, and, and you got to watch, and then what else do you have to do? Just close your mouth, right? Just be silent. You only have to be silent. You don't even have to talk. Like, like talking about your fear is not going to help anything here. It will only make it worse. Just, just, just watch. Let's lift up your eyes and look and close your mouth. That's all you have to do. Isn't that, isn't that strangely comforting? Like, on the one hand, we have the utter powerlessness of God's people. And on the other hand, we've got the sheer, infinite, universe-creating power of the Lord God. It's so utterly humbling, but all comforting at the same time, right? Like, just, just watch. Just lift up your eyes and look with a closed mouth. Less words on your part is going to be good for everybody, right? That's all you have to do. Embrace how small you are and how big I am, God says. Embrace how small you are and how big I am. If you want to experience my power, that's what you have to do. See, he says this isn't even about you ultimately. You just get to participate in the blessing of it. Right? This is ultimately about how God is passionate about his own glory and his name being known. Like verse 4, passionate about his own glory, my name will be known in all the earth, and all you got to do is watch, experience, close your mouth, and embrace the joy of utter humility in your salvation. That's what God's people had to learn, and, and maybe we do too. I wonder, we should ask ourselves, the joy of utter humility, of just watching salvation take place. Egyptians pursuing, people freaking out, Moses speaks to the people, and now God's going to speak to Moses. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians, here it is, shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So again, when you see repetition in the Bible, just like kind of Bible reading one-on-one, when you see repetition, it's there for a purpose. Repetition is there for emphasis. So what's the, what's the emphasis here? What's the repetition that's very intentional? Why does God save his people? Because he wants glory for himself. Look at it in, in 17 and 18 again. Where does the emphasis fall? Does it fall on God's people? Is, is that what God is emphasizing here? That this salvation, Israel, it's all about you because you guys are so awesome. Like, Israel, it's all about you. I just want you guys to have high self-esteem, right? 
It's all about you, how great you are, how lovely you are, how I couldn't live without you. I need, without you, Israel, I'd have this need, and you guys fill my need bucket. Is that what God says? It's not. Now, we don't have to go to the other extreme. Like, God loves us, and if you're wrestling with God's love, he's already told, he's going to tell them in a little bit, and he's already told us through 1 Peter that we saw a few months ago, that we are his treasured possession. But that's not the emphasis of this text. Where does the emphasis lie? Again, what's the repetition? 17 and 18. I, I will, I will, I will, I will be known. I will get glory. There's no mention of God's people here at all, really. It's all about the glory of God and his name being known to a people who don't know him. So then we get to see it. And this is where it starts in verse 19. God will get glory for himself. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So if you guys have seen the Prince of Egypt, the animated movie, if you haven't, it'd be great to review it. This is a great scene to kind of help us um, imaginatively picture what this would have been like. Um, you can go home and watch this, this scene. Just look on YouTube. It's, it's beautiful. So I commend that to you, okay? And there was the cloud and the darkness, verse 20, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a, east, a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry Land and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before the Lord, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. So this is just simply what happens. To save God's people and judge God's enemies. And now let's look at the result, okay? Kind of the punchline of this whole chapter the effect of this on God's people. So look at verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. So so they're walking through. There's water on each side of them. They're passing through the waters of judgment. And in the Bible, water oftentimes is, uh, is an actual judgment or a symbol of judgment. And, and God's people, they pass through the judgment. It doesn't, the, the judgment of God does not touch them. They're saved through the waters of judgment. 
Verse 30. Here's the effect on God's people. And I wonder if this will apply to us as well. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So remember a few verses ago what God said that he wanted them to do? Just stand firm and watch. Stay put and lift up your eyes. Stay put and see. Close your mouth and just see. And what's the report here? It's that that is exactly what God's people did. See it in verse uh, 30 and in verse 31. Israel saw the Egyptians. 31, Israel saw the great power. They saw, they watched, they were witness to a miracle of power and judgment. And then what was the result? Verse 31, look at it. The result was, you see the first part of the verse, comma, so, that's a, that's a clue that we're about to get a result. So, the people feared the Lord, number one, and they, two, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So, let's camp out right here for a bit. This is the two words that summarize the result of watching God get glory for himself and make his name known. What happens to God's people that love him and trust him? They, they, they fear him and they believe in him. They fear him and they believe in him. That's kind of the punchline to this whole chapter. The result of God getting glory for himself is fear and belief in God. So imagine you're reading this text for the first time and maybe your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your mom or dad or whatever, they actually live this, and now you're reading an account of it. I think you would read verse 31 and go, yeah, I think that's the action point for me too. The author is commending to me fear the Lord and belief in the Lord in light of who he is and what he does. So here's a summary statement of this chapter that I want to I commend to us. It looks like this. God's pursuit of his own glory that results in reverent fear and trusting belief from his people is God's goal and our only hope of joy and satisfaction. God's pursuit of his own glory that results in reverent fear and trusting belief from his people is God's goal and our only hope of joy and satisfaction. So let's, 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 let's unpack this. So why is God so bent on getting glory for himself? So we saw that clearly in the repetition of the text, right? He's doing all this for his own glory, meaning he's doing all this so that he can show his greatness, power, beauty, might, sovereignty over all things. It's like, it's like when you see a, a beautiful sunset and you stand back and go, wow, like there just aren't even really any words. This is so glorious. Or you see that freshly fallen snow outline the branches of the trees and you're like, wow, that is so beautiful. It's glorious. See, God wants his people to have that reaction when we read this text and we see what he has done. And when we think about what he has made, and you look at that sunset that he made, or you look at the starry heavens that he made, what does the Bible say? The heavens declare the glory of God. 
That's their purpose, is for you to see those stars and those planets and the um, uh, infinite beauty of it and go, wow, God, you're glorious. I agree with you. You're declaring your glory, and I'm going to declare it too. He wants glory for himself. God, you're awesome. You're amazing. You're breathtaking. You're matchless in your beauty, grandeur, and love. That's what it means to give God glory. That's what God wants for himself. But if you're thoughtful, it's at this point where we run into a problem. And we need to wrestle with this because this is a huge theme in the whole scripture. That God is all about his own glory, his greatness, his beauty. So here's the question. Is God seeking glory for himself narcissism on the part of God? Is God uh, an infinite narcissist? Like, like he's an insecure person fishing for compliments? See, why is it that if we acted like this, it would be abhorrent? Like, I want, you, I want y'all to give me some glory. Like, if I said that, that would be like, you need to be fired, right? And if you said that, we'd be like, we need you to leave, right? That doesn't fly. That's, that's arrogance. But evidently with the Lord, it's different. So what's up with that? Well, think about it like this. Consider an illustration. Let's say I told my kids, guys, guess what? This Christmas, you better buckle up because we are going to bless your socks off. It's, you're going to have presents that are going to blow your mind. The suspense, I mean, the suspense at Christmas is already killing them. This, if I said that to them, they would just be like mind-bending suspense, right? And then I show up on Christmas morning, and I just give them a gift that's just kind of like my grandma when she gave me a piece of fruit in my stocking one time. It's like, man, that is a letdown. Like, don't do that to your kids. I had an orange in my stocking. Like, ugh, that is lame sauce, right? Major letdown. So let's say I, after I hyping it all up, that's what I did to them. See, presents are gifts. They're enjoyable to the degree that they're valuable, right? We give glory to a present. We say, wow, this gift is glorious to the degree that we're like in awe of its value. So, for example, my, my wife... Um, just a real simple example. My wife loves our home. And she's put a lot of work into making it a, a great space for people to have people in and be hospitable and for our family. And, and she loves it. And, you know, we dream about maybe doing some remodels in the future. You know, that's kind of how our mind works. Let's, let's make this better, make this better. And let's just say magically one day she comes home and I had done all the remodels she'd ever dreamt of. And she would stop and look at our home that she really values and go, Wow, these, all these remodels I've been dreaming of, and our home is glorious now. Look how amazing it is. She, would, she, she gives glory, worth, honor, appreciation to something based on its value, right? It's valuable to her, so she's going to have that kind of response. Well, see, God operates the same way. God is not like a grandma putting an orange in your stocking, okay? He gives the best gift in the world. Not a second place gift, not a third place gift, not some garage sale gift. 
he gives something that blows our minds because it's so good. What is that? It's himself. It's himself. God is the gift. God is the greatest thing in all the universe. He has no rivals in power, splendor, majesty, mercy, or might. So can you begin to see now how God pursuing his own glory is good for us? Joy, satisfaction? If he were to tell us to pursue our joy in something other than himself, he would be allowed He would be allowing us to settle for something second best. And God knows that he's the greatest. That's not arrogance. It's just a fact. God is being completely honest about the facts. Right? And since God knows that he is the greatest, he seeks to increase our joy by giving us that which is most valuable and making sure that we can see how glorious he really is. Like, here's another example. Let's say I, I told our kids that we're going on a vacation, and we're going to go out west, and we're going to see the Grand Canyon. And, and these guys have never seen it. And I just sit down, and I recount day after day the beauty of the Grand Canyon and the vistas that will take your breath away and, and, and the waters that have just carved these amazing channels century after century after century and the trails and the wildlife and the sunsets, and the colors. And then we get in the car, and we drive out west, and we get to a spot where it says on a sign, Grand Canyon, 10 miles, turn this way. And the kids are like, Dad, let's go, let's do it, let's see it. How glorious the Grand Canyon is. And I look at them and I say, eh, I don't really feel like it. Let's just keep driving. How cruel, right? How selfish. Why would I want to withhold this breathtaking beauty from my kids? And here's the point. God is not a stingy, lazy father. He's all about giving us a front row seat. Like, lift up your eyes and see. If you just stare right here all day long, you get a neck ache and you just get sick of yourself. You weren't created for narcissism. You were created to lift your eyes and watch what God has done or is doing or will do. He's all about giving us a front row seat to the beauty of the Grand Canyon. And here's the deal. God is the Grand Canyon. You with me? He gives himself and calls us to behold him and who he is and what he does so that he can get glory for himself from us because he knows that when we do that, we will receive the best thing in the world. What? Him. Right? There's freedom from our collective narcissism. It's right here, and it's so good. It's so good. So you see how God pursuing his own glory is our only hope for true satisfaction and joy? So so when you see this text, don't be tempted to think that God is a guy fishing for compliments. Think God is so good, loving, and wise to call us to take the best present in the universe he has to offer— Himself. God getting glory for himself gives us a front row seat to the Grand Canyon. And and just be still with a closed mouth and watch. Like you've never felt so small and you've never felt so alive. That's what we long for, right? God's pursuit of his own glory 
that results in reverent fear and trusting belief from his people is God's goal and our only hope of joy and satisfaction. Verse 31. What was the result? Lifting your eyes, seeing, closing your mouth. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. They feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. God's people saw the great power, they feared and believed in the Lord. And here's where we jump to 2018, where we can kind of land this in our neighborhood for how this applies to us. God's people are still doing verse 31 today. This is as biblical as it gets, cover to cover. This is God's will for us still to this day. To see God's power and humble ourselves in reverent fear and trust God by faith. That's one way to sum up Christianity. See God's power and humble ourselves in reverent fear and trust God by faith. So what do we look at today? Because there's no Red Sea around us. What do we look at today? We don't look at salvation of the Red Sea. We look at, no surprise, the cross and the empty tomb. That's what we see. That's the power of God. Right? We don't look back at the Red Sea parting. No, we look back at, at a cross where his arms were, 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 were lifted apart and, and you see a, a stone that has moved away. That's the power of God that we look to and that's what the Bible teaches. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. You could, Old Testament context would be the word of God to let my people go is, is folly to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, Israel's in the process of being saved, it's the power of God. The word of the cross, the gospel, the good news of how to get saved, that is the power of God. The cross is the power of God for us now. If you've been saved by God, you look back to the cross just like the Israelites looked over their shoulders and saw the salvation through the water, we look back and see our salvation at the cross. And here is the ironic beauty of it all. At the cross, God bears the judgment of his enemies on himself. He takes the place of an Egyptian. You see that? He's the one who drowns in the water so that we can go free. The Bible says that we're all like Egyptians. Ephesians 2 says that children of wrath before God came and did something about saving us. But the beauty is in the fact that our sin is judged by God in God taking it on himself at the cross. Right? He died for us to save us from his just wrath. Like, he bore the water of judgment in our place. He took the drowning in our place so that we could walk through and see the water part. He bore the judgment we deserve so that he could be seen as a just God. Justice has to be done, so he says, I'll take it on myself. And also a, a, a God who mercifully saves. So, so when you look back and see your salvation at the cross, how much more... Should you stand in awe, just like those uh, uh, Israelites would have just stood in awe? Can you believe we're walking through the Red Sea and it's water and it's not killing us? 
We should have that same response. When you think about the cross, when you read about the cross and, and the empty tomb and what that's accomplished for you, that you used to be a child of wrath, but Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who being rich in mercy, saved us. So we look back to the cross. We also look back to the empty tomb and the power of God in the resurrection. So power of God at the Red Sea, New Testament, power of God at the cross, power of God at the resurrection. And look at what the Bible says, Ephesians 1, here on the screen. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great, here it is, his power is to help those who believe him. And so tell me, Paul, about this power. Okay, it's that same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heaven. So you want to know the power of God? You want to see it? You want to experience it and feel it? You don't look back to the Red Sea. You look back to the empty tomb. You stand in awe and trust him by following him because it's true. It's a historical fact. And then what's so cool is that he gives his spirit that's reflective of that resurrection power, and it comes and lives in you. Listen to one more text of the Bible. This is so, so beautiful. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, so that's the power of God. We've established that, right? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, dwells in us, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that's the power of God alive and well in us today. Just like the power that tore the Red Sea in half. That power, according to the Bible, is alive in us today in the form of resurrection power given to his people by his spirit living in us as a church. Isn't that amazing? So if you want to see God's power and works, look at the resurrection power alive in this church by the Spirit of God in us. I mean, how many testimonies could we parade up here of, of lives being changed, people coming to faith in Christ, love working itself out in acts of service, kindness, and grace. Sins being forgiven, relationships reconciled, united, marriages growing, single people ministering with power in their singleness, kids being taught the gospel and living in light of it, prayers being answered, past suffering being redeemed. So when you go on Slack and you see on the Needs channel this church forsaking the individualism and narcissism of selfishness and the Needs channel says, hey, I have a need, and, 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 we, and we meet one another's needs, that's just one small sliver of resurrection power alive in us. If that wasn't alive in us, we wouldn't do that. Right? So you should, this is simple application. When you see that Needs channel, think, man, this is God's resurrection power alive in us, just like the same power that tore the Red Sea in half, and we should stand in awe. You with me? Like all the normal stuff of, of Christianity? No, this is, this is a miracle of God doing his work by his spirit in us. God is so glorious to make his power alive in us today. Should we not, along with the ancient Israelites, see what God is doing and respond, verse 31, with reverence, with reverence, fear, reverence, 
and, and, and humble, trusting faith. That's when, when church gets beautiful. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? We ask it every week because we need it. And so, Lord, um, apart from you, we can do nothing. May your word light a fire in us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.